0: That's the veil of neutrality. I live in this world, and the game's structured, and it's fair. What's behind the veil is the concern about structural discrimination. And that concern, in short, is one that points to how it's a lot more difficult for you know, the elderly, the young, the poor and the people of color to get this two by three laminated card. Mm-hmm. Who are in the tenth that have the burden yeah. and the people concerned about their legacy, folks like you and me, folks who have inherited this history, mm-hmm. folks who are mindful of this warping in our ideology of equality get worried about it but there's no incentive for a political movement in this regard right there's no incentive to rethink these questions absent this patima of neutrality Mm -hmm. And so in some ways it's this notion of neutrality that becomes questionable because the notion of neutrality reinforces the inequality that exists purely because of a long saga of defining who is superior and who is subordinate within our democratic republic.
1: Welcome to B-Side Conversations, the podcast that brings the other side of reality from the black and brown folks that live it every day. You see us, but do you know our stories? You hear our perspective, but where does it come from? You are us, but maybe you think you're the only one. I'm your host, Jonathan Hall, and I'm so glad you're listening. Sit back and open your mind's eye to a new way of experiencing the world. On the B-Side.
0: Daria Rothmeier, um has done some excellent work pointing out that kind of reality about um, how racism keeps replicating itself. Mm-hmm. She talks about locked-in advantage mm-hmm. and how locked-in advantage keeps giving the opportunity for these cycles of... Um, intergenerational wealth to be maintained among white folks, but impossible, far more difficult to accumulate for black folks mm-hmm. on average, yeah. right? Are there black millionaires? Yes. Are there poor white folks? Yes. But in the aggregate, mm-hmm. you know, we're still dealing with the fallout of rules created a century ago, you know? And the best example of this, as I alluded to earlier, is housing policy and the whole policy of redlining. There's a lot that's been done about redlining these days. Probably the best place to go to look at that is there was a This American Life podcast from a few years back mm-hmm. that kind of laid it all out. Worth the listen. Yeah. Um. You know, and I'm going to segue now. Um, another fantastic example of this is voting. Aha! Aha! So let's let well, yeah let's let's get into voting
1: and the Voting Rights Act. Um, and just real quick, I think I think what's shocking, surprising, and not about the history of redlining and the history of housing in this country is the same thing that's shocking, surprising, and not about the Voting Rights Act, is that this history is largely unknown to the majority of people in this country. Citizens of the United States are, are woefully unaware of this history, um, especially white people. And especially white people, I was going to say, especially white people are privileged, but not, not really. Um, but especially white people. And it's interesting It's interesting and frustrating to have conversations around these issues. And one of the reasons why I think you see amongst, in talking about white liberal or liberal white supremacy, one of the reasons why white people think that race is much less of an issue than when you pull black people, Latino people, or other people of color, is because of this unknown history. Because you hear rumblings, or not rumblings, but you hear stories like this about the how the system is unfair and about how voting was really hard as a black person coming up because our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents lived this stuff. But, you know, you grow up in middle-class suburbia or middle-class, you grow up middle-class and white in this country, you don't have grandparents telling you these stories, parents telling you these stories because they didn't live it. And the news didn't really report it. Um, And so it's interesting to just to 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 then in this current landscape how why why these issues are still so difficult to talk about is because many times people are learning about these things for the first time. And oh, by the way, they've been indoctrinated with this idea that this country is fundamentally fair, has been since has been, if not since slavery, since. The Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, right? We fix mm-hmm. those problems. Done and good, the Fair Housing Act and the Fair Housing
0: Act. It's sort of the the uh, the triple play of <laughs> of civil rights, right? right? Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, Fair Housing Act. Yeah, but people aren't aware of this history, so let's. So so uh, and maybe as a way to frame this entire conversation, as you were talking, it made me think about. Um, a phrase that I, you know, deployed um, a number of years back when I started writing about this sort of stuff. And, and I think, at least rhetorically, it gives us a lens to explain why, when you look at the facts and you look at the history, this is all um, a legacy of hits and misses. Of, you know, two steps forward, two steps back, you know, successes, failures. And it gets into the lineage of communities that have these conversations because they were on the receiving end mm-hmm. of the subordination. But when you're, when you sit in the position of privilege, you see the world as fair because. You don't see your advantage diminished. Mm-hmm. Living in that world is living under the veil of neutrality. Mm. The veil, and by the veil of neutrality, I mean... You think about how... You know, all these rules that are of general applicability... Apply to everyone... On their face, they make no kind of distinction between one group or another. So they're, you know, neutral. They operate in a way that seems easy to apply. Mm -hmm. And you personally can, and what I love to pick on is voter ID laws, you can reach into your wallet and flip it open. And get your driver's license and everything's cool. Yep. That's the veil of neutrality. I live in this world and the game's structured and it's fair. What's behind the veil is the concern about structural discrimination. And that concern, in short, is one that points to how it's a lot more difficult for you know the elderly the young the poor and the people of color to get this two by three laminated card Mm -hmm. it's a lot more difficult because of poverty because of isolation from the resources it takes to prove your identity the lack of availability of, you know, off government offices that can give you the ID readily and, you know, what I have called the indirect costs of voting, mm-hmm. right? The indirect cost of registering, the indirect cost of participating. And political scientists point out, and kind of makes sense, right? That the more hoops you put in order to jump through them in order to get to vote, the more difficult it becomes, the more dissuaded folks are. Mm -hmm. So no, it's not the Jim Crow days or even the days before the 15th Amendment where states could basically say, we don't let black people vote. But it is about this mass effect of dissuasion due to the cumulative burdens Mm -hmm. on voting. Now, implicit in that is this line I've connected from slavery to today. Yeah. Right? And it's that long narrative that makes the cumulative voting burdens of today make sense but all that hides around the veil hides behind the veil of neutrality Mm -hmm. because if you uh, if you pull the veil open if you pull the curtains open and take a look at the long story right this story starts with the constitution and the constitution of 1789 leaves voting up to the states And whatever rules the states want to put together are perfectly fine. If Congress wants to, when it comes to federal elections, Mm -hmm. Congress can change the rules, but states in their own elections, it's whatever goes. And that was the state of affairs from 1789 to 1868. Which meant there were some states that had no reason to discriminate against black people. I mean, some of them didn't have any black people, (laughs) you know. Um, But all of the original 13 colonies had slavery at some point during their origin story. Mm -hmm. But, of course, this chattel slavery was primarily in the South during the the Antebellum era. Mm-hmm. But the, you get this network of trying to figure out who's a slave and who's free, which is... And, of course, a slave cannot be a citizen. Right. But if you're free and you're a citizen, you can participate. So within that spectrum, there are folks who are just shut out because they're literally treated as property mm-hmm. and there are folks who can get in. So, I'm not saying that black folks couldn't vote <clears throat> during during the antebellum period, but it was a lot harder and and, and the states who were more and more invested in the political economy of slavery, <clears throat> the fewer incentives they had to let Slaves specifically, but black folks generally participate in the process. And of course, this all fits into the narrative of thinking about the existence of white supremacy and what its ideological grounding points are, right? So but the law was all over the place, and given that there there wasn't a massive number of free blacks um in the South, and probably some more in the north, but there was such a minority, you weren't necessarily worried about burdens, you know, there was no need for, to prevent, you know, the discrimination concerning the right to vote on the basis of race. And of itself straightforward right but all that long history of states being able to use whatever other metrics to decide who can vote versus who can't vote still remain let me give you three examples that prove the point. point first there was a case called Gwynn versus United States In Gwin, the court was faced the challenge of grandfather clauses. Now, grandfather clause is when um, a state's voting rules say, even if you are not eligible to vote, if your grandfather was eligible to participate and to be clear in these ex-Confederate states, it would say if your grandfather was able to fight as a soldier in the army, you get and otherwise participate as a citizen, you get the rights to participate as a citizen. Mm -hmm. Right. And this was a way around poll taxes and literacy tests and other things. Mm -hmm. Now, most of the people who fought in the Civil War, were white. There were black soldiers too, Mm -hmm. we know, but this was a way to enfranchise white folks, Mm -hmm. but largely disenfranchise black folks. The court in this 1915 case looked at the implication there of race. This was structured to help white folks to be disadvantageous to black folks. We've made a categorization on the basis of race. The plain text of the 15th Amendment says you can't do that. Mm -hmm. And so the grandfather clauses were struck down. Mm -hmm. Now, the court in a case called Minor versus Happersett in the late 19th century was confronted with the question of the extent to which women could participate in the franchise in the face of a state statute that said women were not eligible voters. The court in that case said, well, given the constitutional law here only speaks to race, states are free to legislate regarding the franchise on any other permissible basis. The (laughs) Constitution doesn't speak to women voting, and we can't enforce a rule in that regard, Mm -hmm. and therefore this statute stands. Right? So, which is weird when you think about the 14th Amendment and equal citizenship requires equal protection of people's rights, but this is the way the Constitution evolves, right? It evolves through realizing what people are and are not equal, Mm -hmm. which actually implies that the law has a perspective on who is and who is not equal. Mm -hmm. And as that perspective evolves, the law changes. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think about O'Bergfell and gay marriage, right? You know, twenty years ago the court was upholding sodom or bans on sodomy laws. Mm-hmm. But gay marriage is legal now, <laughs> right? And that battle continues on and on. But it makes the point. Same way with gender, same way with race. Mm-hmm. But the challenge here is that the truck Concerning race is slow, no, it's glacial compared to like <laughs> yeah. the growth of the rights of same sex couples. And this I mean women face similar static, but there's nothing more politically divisive than race, mm-hmm. I would argue. And, and in terms of and, and explicitly in terms of these arguments about constitutional law. That isn't to say sexism isn't a powerful force. Right. um, But it occupies a different sort of sphere in terms of employment and economic relations, in terms of domestic relations and the like, where there's an argument that these issues surrounding race and these racialized constructions of who does and who does not... get to participate, end up actually defining citizenship at the get-go. Mm-hmm. And we're, we are not having that debate in regards to gender or in regards to the rights of gay folks. Mm-hmm. But I digress.
1: <laughs>
0: there was a couple of other cases regarding poll taxes because here's the thing as i alluded to earlier when it comes to the black codes and when it comes to you know the old school of mass incarceration you might not be able to target blacks specifically but when it comes to the treatment as a way to disenfranchise you can target or the states during the jim crow era targeted statuses where blacks tended to predominate Mm -hmm. and that involved economics that involved the ability to pay a tax as a condition for participating in the franchise and this is the poll tax now the poll tax has a very long history it used to just be a way of collecting taxes from each person generally mm-hmm. to fill the government coffers you know this is a product of sort of the English strategy of making people pay for their privileges mm-hmm. but then it and during that era of states virtual un, virtually unfettered discretion in defining the franchise, the first thing, the first generation of defining the franchise was through property ownership requirements. Right. So you had to it's, own property. You had to order. own property in order to vote. And <laughs> that could be land, that could evolved into the ability to pay a tax Mm -hmm. and this is what i mean by a poll tax Mm -hmm. because the transformation of the american economy moving from an agrarian state to an urban industrial state land ownership ended up disenfranchising and lots of white men in cities as cities continued to grow so the poll tax became the substitute for that of course you realize the implication here when it comes to property ownership your property in the antebellum united states in states that recognize slavery could be slaves niggers. yes <laughs> and and if you you know look at any historical study of the period Negro slaves were worth a lot of money. Yeah. A A quick aside. Yeah.
1: I was visiting... um, (laughs) I was visiting my wife's family. um, And we went to... We went to a a friend of theirs home who was moving out uh, of their home, moving into an assisted living facility. Mm -hmm. And this person... Uh, really nice person, uh, very friendly, uh, and when we were getting ready to leave, uh, they wanted to show my mother-in-law a document from 1850, mm-hmm. I might have told you this story, uh, and this document was a list of the things that this relative owned in 19, or 1850, and at the top of the list... Mm-hmm was two negro slaves. Oh, amongst, you know, the the rifle that they own, the knives, the you know, pots and pans, that sort of stuff. That was the, those are the first, that was the
0: first thing on the list. Two negro slaves. And talking two negro slaves, a knife, a, knife, a gun, a gun and some, some other pots stuff. and pans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of knickknacks.
1: A couple of knickknacks. Niggers and knickknacks. <laughs> <laughs> um And it was, it was uncomfortable to say the least. And, um, but what was amazing was that this person had just sat with me in the room for like an hour chit-chatting and they weren't talking to me per se, but this person was sitting in the presence of a black person the entire time and it didn't seem to cross their mind that sharing this information was anything more than an important document about their heritage. This, so this person was really excited to find this document. It's really exciting to find documents of your relatives from hundreds of years ago, 150 years ago. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was just... It was, it was, it, it was uncomfortable and, and, uh, and shocking, surprising, but not. Um, so yeah, I mean, this person... Participating in, in in the vote, at the time, owned property, right, and, that, and property that property was very
0: very valuable, top of the ledger, right, and 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 the theory of that time was that your ability to own property showed your competency to participate in the demos, right, your ability to own property. And in this case, your ability to own other people. Yep. You were good at participating in the state built on slave labor yep. and on the management of slavery. And, and and you know, it's, it's astounding and shocking in that sense to think, wow, 150, 160, 200 years ago, we lived that. But here's the not part. The but not is. But we have not let that reality sink into what we understand about our society today. The obliviousness of your in-laws friend. Points to that, right? This is just a document. Here's some history. Y'all take a look. <laughs> look at this. Ain't this neat? Yeah, and, and I think that person might have even said, like, this is so neat. Well, it is neat. And I mean, you know, I your listeners might not know that I've done all my academic training in history. And I, you know, wrote a thesis about The poll tax in the 20th century, and I promise, dear listeners, we'll get to the 20th century in a moment. (laughs) But while we're here in the 19th, and our relationship between 1850 and 2015 is one that makes us think, well, here's this neat stuff that happened generations ago, and yeah, it was a mess back then, but everything's okay now, and this Mm -hmm. is just an artifact. But the reality is that these... Artifacts speak to a past that still has power over today. And there are lots of people from lots of perspectives who argue that the past does not have power. But I refer you back to what we said a while back in terms of the fact that the structures have shaped how our law exists today. The... Narrative regarding the modern day troubles and problems that people of color face. And we've referred several times to mass incarceration, to disproportionate rates of poverty, to explicit and implicit discrimination. You know, we can all call this structural racism, mm. right? But where did that structure come from? It didn't just... Somebody didn't just hit the reset button in 1965. (laughs) And everything began from zero. And then somewhere from outer space, racism just landed. (laughs) Or not, depending on who you ask. (laughs) Right. This stuff has a centuries-long legacy. And that document was a piece of that legacy... And evoked it. And in in a different strain of scholarship, I actually have a chapter in a book that will probably come out at the beginning of next year, Mm -hmm. which is ultimately about how we don't want to confront that legacy. And it basically makes the argument that Before we can talk about monetary reparations or restructuring society in a kind of grand corrective of the legacy of slavery, first and foremost, we've got to get our minds right about this thing, right? We've got to rethink how we think about slavery, and it's this problem of failing to think in a way that is grounded in history, in a way that is conscious of the reality of a person owning another person and having ultimate, complete and total power over that person and that consequence that comes from the generations of received tradition Mm -hmm. that are about superior and subordinate we have to confront that and the argument of this book chapter is basically that if we can share this history and share it in a meaningful and conscious way that's the first kind of reparations that everybody needs to receive because everybody's damaged by this legacy of white male supremacy digress (laughs) (laughs) digress <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but but this legacy is gets played out in the way we structure the rules to determine who can and who can't participate right right this legacy gives states with legislators who are minded to shut black people out the impetus and the tools in order to structure the law in a way that has that lockout effect, to use Meyer's phrase, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we look at the fact that we can't explicitly discriminate on the basis of race. We can't just call black people out in the laws Mm -hmm. or Hispanic people or whom have you in the modern structure, but we can create structures that target them because this legacy of subordination puts the vulnerable populations in various patterns Mm -hmm. and in various situations in life. And we can target the situations. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And this is how the poll tax worked. And this is how literacy tests worked. And time and again, the court said... Well, there's no prohibition in the Constitution against such rules. And moreover, states are allowed the discretion to create whatever rules they wish that aren't prohibited in the Constitution. So you get the discretion. There's no explicit prohibition. And so you can charge a black person a tax in order to vote. And... So, the fact that they can't pay that tax just means they are not able to participate. Mm -hmm. And that's the rule. And it works equally for everybody. And that's the end of the story. And that's the veil of neutrality working, right? right? Right. Yeah, well, we can, it's perfectly fine. And the court upholds it in a case called Breedlove versus Stuttles. The court upholds it. And then in other cases where the racial impact of this was attacked in the lower courts, courts said time and again, this is within the state's discretion, so we can't do anything about it. So you get this sphere working and you get states deciding, well, Yeah, we can just make these rules that just make it so difficult that black folks don't want to participate. Mm -hmm. And this is how it worked in the era of Jim Crow. But there were folks who decided that that argument is ultimately missing the point. So as part of the impetus towards true civil rights there were folks who argued, well, wait a second. Given its effects, this is actually racial discrimination. Mm-hmm. And if you pay attention to the effects more than the structure, you'll see that. And there was an important set of cases in the late 40s, early 50s that get referred to as Smith v. All right and other cases that followed it. But collectively, they're thought of as the white primary cases. So in this situation, here's the state allowing the political party to say, okay, political party, you get to define who gets to participate in your campaigns, right? You get to define not more to the point who gets the vote Mm -hmm. in your primaries and who gets to be shut out so the parties decided well only white people get to vote in the primaries Mm -hmm. general election everybody can vote at least in theory but in the primaries only white people get the vote so it's only the white people who get to decide who the nominees are. Mm-hmm. It's, it's to the white people that the candidates have to campaign in order to win these, the preliminary elections. It's this structure that shuts out who gets to participate and who doesn't. So the court was confronted with this and it basically made a decision that struck down the white primaries and, in the follow-on cases, all the other ways that the white primaries could manifest. And what the court basically said was, well, these political parties might be private organizations, private clubs, and, and the First Amendment recognizes the right to free association. So you can pick who gets to be part of your club mm-hmm. when you're acting as a private entity. But when it but when you're serving a public function mm-hmm. like elections and when your primaries are a filter for who does and who does not get elected, then what you're doing is actually state action and not private action. And because it's state action, delimiting the voting electorate to only white people violates that 15th Amendment. Boom. Boom. So that was the first kind of strike against this system. <clears throat> but then the next question became well, what about all of these functional structures that are neutral on their face but shut people out, mm-hmm. you know, as a matter of. Reality. So, this was a major part of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. People think about I Have a Dream, just to pick on Martin Luther King, because he's the most obvious example, right? Think about I Have a Dream, the letter from Birmingham jail, the mountaintop speech, and all these other major addresses. Martin Luther King Jr.'s first major address was... At the Lincoln Memorial. And he stood on the steps. And he gave a speech. That got national attention. The speech was not. I have a dream. The speech was. Give us the ballot. It was 1957. And. You can go online. Or you can go on to Spotify. And you can listen to the speech. And King imagined. That you could radically restructure the South Mm -hmm. if black people got full and fair voting rights. And it was a radical vision. And he gave so many metaphors of making government accountable, making government serve all the people and abolishing segregationist lawmakers by... Due to the fact that, due to the idea of this is what would happen if you let b- black people fully participate. And these are the issues that he brought to the White House time and again to Kennedy and then to Johnson. And even in 1957, at, there was a Civil Rights Act, but it had a voting provision. Mm. And that pr- those provisions were built around monitoring these issues and finding ways to help participation and collecting and publicizing the data of the disparity in voting. And you saw similar provisions in 1964 in the Civil Rights Act, but, and at this point we're at the Johnson administration, folks realize, well, this isn't working. This is not enough. Mm -hmm. How do we get to the heart of the matter? because the problem lies with the state discretion and the local registrar and monitor of voting who would be able to decide who did and who did not meet the qualifications and in a world where they have unfettered discretion even if that person could pass the literacy test Pay the poll tax. They could just invent some other way Mm -hmm. to shut out the people they didn't want to vote and to backdoor the people they did want to vote. Just think of it this way. Poll taxes didn't only affect poor black folks, they affected poor white folks too. Mm -hmm. But in that kind of backdoor, we'll wave you around or we'll find people to pay your poll tax for you or we'll Mm -hmm. we'll just ignore it. Right. You know, Poor white folks got to vote where poor black folks didn't in these strongholds of the South. And you couple that with the terrorism brought about by the Klan and with the knowing support of the white citizens councils and just the express establishment of racial domination. This was a difficult nut to crack, with the law as it existed before 1965. Ultimately, the problem came down to the fact that the federal government was not enforcing in full that 15th Amendment. Mm -hmm. There will be no discrimination on the basis of race when it comes to the right to vote. So the Voting Rights Act gets passed as a means of fully implementing that idea. And it has two major provisions, right? Section two of the Voting Rights Act basically codified that idea that there is no discrimination on the basis of race when it comes to voting. And what it does is give folks a cause of action to sue. Mm -hmm when it comes to racial discrimination. And shortly thereafter, um, the law continued to evolve to take into account both explicit racial discrimination and under a totalities of the circumstances test, disparate impacts that have Uh, A racial effect right so you can take your case to court and you can sue Mm -hmm. whether it be barriers to participation in voting or districting Mm. that dilutes the power of minorities to vote at the expense of white people or, or I'm sorry I got that mixed up dilute minority voting power to the advantage of white people Mm -hmm. or all other ways where you can point to either an express or an implicit effect on voting, right? So Section 2 created a general provision to that effect. It implements the 15th Amendment expressly. But the, like I said, there was a special problem. The special problem was that these ex-Confederate states who had put up all these barriers and who could, in because the legislature can move faster than the courts, mm-hmm. can reinvent these barriers and get away with discrimination before it can be controlled by a Section 2 suit The question became, well, how do we stop that? It has to stop. Mm -hmm. We can't just let it get reinvented Mm -hmm. and then an election cycle pass before it gets struck down in the courts and then the harm's done and then they reinvent it again and you end up in this cycle that continues the lockout effect. Mm
1: -hmm. How do we
0: get there? The decision of Congress was to just stop the cycle altogether. And you stop the cycle by requiring... That you strike all of these structural laws down. So poll taxes were abolished by the 24th Amendment in 1964 in federal elections. And then in a case called Harper v. Virginia in 1966 in state elections, Mm -hmm. right? So And they were also a prohibited practice in the voting rights act right in addition to um literacy tests abolished by the voting rights act and other structures of this sort so what we so you stop the offending practices Mm -hmm. one two you make it so that the states with a long history of racial discrimination in voting have to get any change they make to their voting laws approved by either the Department of Justice or a three-judge court, of, and before you can implement the change, the idea here w- was to ensure that the change did not work to the detriment of black folks. Mm -hmm. The technical term for it is retrogression. Mm -hmm. So, with that in place, you see a vast improvement in the ability of black folks to vote after the Voting Rights Act was passed. And many scholars talk about the Voting Rights Act as the most... Successful civil rights legislation in American history. Cool. Right. So we go from 20 to 30% participation rates to like 70 to 80% in the initial passage of the act. <laughs> and the act continued to evolve to get to not just voting in and of itself, but to the way districts get shaped and to other concerns. The resurgence of the political conservative movement as well as the judicial conservative movement.
1: It's it's always been an arms race, but at this point where there's been a serious blow to the landscape of racial discrimination, these wascally wasis wabbits... (laughs) Um, you almost
0: made me spit out my water right <laughs> there.
1: <laughs> um, so the, the, the conservative movement is essentially like, okay, now we need to retool and come back and figure out how we're going to fight this new battle. Right. Yeah. And
0: this gets us back to the conversation we had about the Southern strategy, uh-huh. right? And we're thinking both as a political matter Our bread and butter is going to be found in the disaffected white folks because we're going to spin civil rights progress as something to the detriment Mm -hmm. of the white establishment. We're going to stoke up the fear of civil rights and and use that to win elections. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there's this conservative ascendancy in terms of legal thinking. And so over the course of from the late 70s to 2000 we end up having courts being more and more conservative. And so the first move in a case called City of Mobile versus Bur- Bowdoin mm-hmm. was to attempt to confine the Voting Rights Act to just voter entry concerns Mm -hmm. and particularly concerns that are about explicit discrimination and not implicit discrimination so the 15th amendment gets interpreted to only express concerns that are explicitly racist Mm -hmm. and this falls in line with a case called Washington versus Davis which basically did the same thing with the 14th Amendment, you have to demonstrate and express discriminatory intent in order to get relief under the Reconstruction Amendments. But of course, because the Voting Rights Act is statutory, not Constitution, it's not a direct interpretation of the Constitution, in 1982, the Voting Rights Act was amended to make explicit that it could reach both express racial discrimination and implied racial discrimination. We can look at disparate treatment and disparate impact. Mm -hmm. We can address trends that tend to burden minority voters more. Mm -hmm. So that's 1982, but the battle continues. And, you know, it's too much now to go into the deep details, but... You know, with cases like the University of California versus Bakke and Croson and a bunch of other cases, the issue of race-conscious voting, well, not voting, but race-conscious remedies, Mm -hmm. these are mainly affirmative action cases that I'm talking about. But the narrative of beating back against race-conscious civil rights is becoming more and more engraved. And so the Voting Rights Act, in contrast, has suffered, enjoyed in the 80s and the 90s, and even as far as 2006, broad political consensus around it. Mm -hmm. It was the right thing to do. Democrats wanted to protect their African-American base. Republicans didn't want to get called out as racist. And so... Every time the act gets reauthorized it was reauthorized by an overwhelming majority. Um, I think in 2006 it was something like 97 to 2 in the Senate Mm -hmm. and probably only 15 dissenting votes in the House Mm -hmm. and George W. Bush signed it and praised it. Yep. All at the same time they, this was seen as an ongoing concern and an ongoing problem that required measures based on the metrics already ingrained in the Act. Put another way, Congress didn't see the need to change the measurements of who gets that Section 5 pre-clearance coverage mm-hmm. and now i need to go into a little more of the technicalities right so when they passed it what they decided in a part that came to be known as section 4b of the act was okay who gets covered by this section 5 remedy and they said okay we need states that have a history of discriminating against minorities in voting And that the difference in the rates between white voters and minority voters was significantly far enough. Mm -hmm. And if you met those two criteria, then you were covered as a jurisdiction under Section 5, which meant you had to submit your voting law changes Uh for pre-approval. So, Congress didn't tinker with that formula since the basically early to mid 70s. And every time the act was reauthorized, um, Congress agreed to that formula. So, in 2009, Mm -hmm. in a case called Northwest. Northwest Austin Municipal District number one versus Holder, or as election law scholars like to call it, Namundo. Um, the Northwest Austin, Texas Municipal District sought to be removed from coverage under the act. Mm-hmm. And they saw this as. Opportunity to strike down Section 5 as a statute that overreaches Congress's authority under the Constitution to pass such legislation. States' rights. States' rights. <laughs> so the court in that case ended up giving them their ultimate relief, being rem- the municipal district as a voting district, Mm -hmm. gets removed from having to comply with the act because of a technical interpretation of the statute and not striking it down in its entirety. Mm -hmm. But by this point, we're in the John Roberts court, Mm -hmm. right? And Chief Justice John Roberts says, look, we are going to avoid the constitutional question today but Congress, you're on notice that um, the court has serious concerns about this. Yep. And, and I avoided talking earlier because I wanted to stress the successes of the act. But the constitutional critique here is that the act is basically singling out particular states in particular jurisdictions within states, Mm -hmm. for this heightened supervision by the federal government. So it's states' rights in the sense that the state cannot fully exercise its right to run elections how they choose. And thus they're suffering from um, federal oversight. Mm -hmm. So... Chief Justice Roberts sends this shot across the bow in the mundo and and Congress like I said 2009 2010 we're getting into more and more of the politically polarized federal government you know and we go from the George W Bush administration to the Obama administration and despite requests, well, despite this clear signal to revise the Voting Rights Act, Congress does not act. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the politics here was that in a Congress led by, you know, the Republican Party, you know, this is Boehner and, and all these sorts of folks, that a bill to revise it would bring up all these concerns and it wouldn't ultimately work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the political strategy is to do nothing and continue to get the effects from the Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. Of course, Shelby County, Alabama mm-hmm. is, brings the same claim, mm-hmm. Right they are talking about the burdens that they suffer as a county under the act and that it is expressly unconstitutional to set up such a burden in section five it is an affront to the ability of states to control elections as they choose and of course the justice department defends the act and this is largely on The idea that this is a valid exercise of congressional authority Mm -hmm. to do so. But, of course, in the decision in 2013, the court doesn't strike down Section 5 in and of itself, Mm -hmm. but it strikes down that formula in Section 4B. And the court basically says, well, the formula has not adjusted for the time. And therefore, Congress needs to go back to the drawing board and create a new formula. So we avoid the thorny issue of whether Section 5 in and of itself is constitutional. But in striking down Section 4B, we end up leaving ourselves in a situation where, you know, Section 5 is. Effectively dead. Yeah. And that problem that I laid out earlier about how states can move faster than the courts makes Section 2 still an effective remedy. But you might have to go through an election cycle or two in order to remedy racial discrimination that you see. Being left as the only route, mm-hmm. so the election cycle or two of the harm continues to happen. Right. I mean, and think about it states can move faster than the courts. I remember when I live well, I didn't live well, I live tweeted the decision on Facebook and then I went to the American Constitution Society blog and blogged about the decision within like 24 hours of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of watching what was happening as I was writing this blog post was watching, you know, the state of Texas, the governor of Texas just getting up and saying, you know, they struck it down three hours ago, I'm announcing now That we are proceeding with this law. And then other states, North Carolina, most recently, is notorious for passing a strict voter ID statute. And all the other states that you would think of, and and states that you wouldn't think of, Mm -hmm. like Indiana, and recently West Virginia, have all passed voter ID and the without a section five at least those states who could be covered by section five aren't covered anymore there's no governor on their ability to implement change and from the point of view of civil rights advocates this is a disaster Mm -hmm. because section two litigation is too slow um, and elections pass with the effects yeah. happening.
1: I just think it's very telling that that after Section 4B was struck down and Section 5 was gutted, I mean, just like you said, all of these states were ready for this. And as soon as it passed, they passed these more restrictive voter ID laws. And so all of this is in response to, like, what's the justification for passing these strict voter ID laws and these, these more restrictive, you know, cutting, cutting early registration uh, or early voting, cutting same-day registration, closing precinct like we see in Alabama where you can no longer get IDs, say, for three locations, you know, whereas opposed to citizens had multiple locations, many mm-hmm. multiple locations. Why are, what's the justification for this?
0: Well, the justification for this is to prevent voter fraud
1: <laughs>
0: and to maintain the integrity of elections. Now, this is interesting in and of itself. I mean, and this is also a shorter history, but in my mind, it replicates the... The underlying biases that we were talking about earlier in terms of the the problems faced in the 100, 150 years ago, right? Part of what I did was to go back to the Constitutional Convention in Virginia of 1902 to 1903 Mm. and I read the record as it pertained to voting and the allowance of poll taxes in what was aptly named the Mississippi Plan um, and you'll I'm answering your question about 2016 by going back to 1902 which by implica- so but you'll see the parallel in a <laughs> minute so in this convention where Mississippi won a case about Voting where the court comes out and says, well, anything that doesn't expressly implicate race mm-hmm. is constitutional. And states have discretion. So in this constitutional convention, well, starting with Mississippi and going across to the South to Virginia, the constitutional framers who were implementing things like poll taxes, voter ID laws, and felon, not voter ID laws, but poll taxes, literacy tests, grandfather clauses, felon disenfranchisement laws, and the like. As they were discussing these things, they were also discussing how they wanted to keep the vicious voter from degrading elections. They wanted to keep those people. And you know which people we're talking about. <laughs> and by these people, we mean niggers. <laughs> yep. Right? Wanted to keep them out. And they were very plain about it. Mississippi is made clear, Yeah, says the guys in Virginia... That we can't explicitly talk about black people, but we can target them in the way that it hurts. Now, this is something I talked about earlier, but what I didn't talk about was this notion of the vicious voter. Mm -hmm. The voter who, by their participation, by their illicit participation in the process, would degrade the process. This was the rhetoric of the Jim Crow period. Which uh, which was the reason. One had to implement poll taxes. And what have you. Flash forward a century later. To. The election of 2000. Mm-hmm. And. Not to Bush v. Gore. Although that raises a whole host of other issues. When we, But let's think state election. Fair enough. For Senate. Mm. The election of John Ashcroft. Now, John Ashcroft, Senator from Missouri, was running against a man named Mel Carnahan. Mr. Carnahan had one problem in this election. An election he won, by the way. He beat John Ashcroft. But the winner, Mr. Carnahan's problem, was that he was dead. And I always love to think about how John Ashcroft got beat by a (laughs) dead man. (laughs) Now, major political operatives in the Republican Party at the time, the part of Ashcroft's campaign, stood up and said out loud that Ashcroft would have won except for dead people voting in southern Missouri. That we have a problem of voter fraud that gave the election to a dead man Now, of course, there was nothing he could do about the election, Ashcroft. But, in the George W. Bush administration, John Ashcroft became Bush's first Attorney General. Ashcroft made it his business Mm -hmm. to root out voter fraud. Apparently because he got the wrong end of alleged voter fraud in his loss as senator. So he directed U.S. attorneys to put voter fraud prosecutions at the top of their list or near the top of their list of enforcement priorities. Mm. In this same time, this concern for voter fraud ended up in a significant white paper that has helped shape election policy over the last 15 years called the Carter-Baker Report. And this then shaped the Help America Vote Act of 2002, which created a limited form of voter ID. But all this is premised on this notion of combating voter fraud. Now, to be clear, we're talking about the idea that voters would show up And impersonate other voters Mm -hmm. in order to get additional votes Mm -hmm. in an election. Right. And this particular fraud was the thing that the Bush administration had a burr up about. Mm -hmm. So, you also get folks Like Thomas Hearn and um, Chris Kobach and others who keep talking about how voter fraud is a problem. And their narrative Mm -hmm. is that there are these illegitimate voters who can go and corrupt elections. And they talk about stories... Such as this sort of in person voter impersonation fraud, and they talk about immigrants being literally being bust in right and overwhelming voter polls and casting votes and then and magically being busted <laughs> out again disappearing in the night and just and and thus corrupting elections and and so there is this. Ramped-up fear that these illegitimate voters are threatening the integrity of elections. Now, the problem is there have been numerous studies that have shown that such voter fraud, particularly in-person voter impersonation fraud... Is virtually non-existent. Political scientist named Lorraine Manite literally wrote the book on it, mm-hmm. called "The Myth
1: of Voter Fraud." I saw that on your uh, on your uh, shelf in your office, actually. Yeah. The
0: other day, yeah. And so she did a rigorous study, dated two thousand eleven, that has shown. That such voter impersonation, voter tampering is virtually non-existent. And Justin Levitt also has written a very thorough study, sort of dated maybe two years ago, called The Truth About Voter Fraud. And you can find that on the Brennan Center for Justice of New York University Law School's website. You can download it. And he goes through the evidence. And in fact, he has kept a database. And basically, the point here is that out of hundreds of millions of votes cast, something like 600 million votes cast in elections over the past decade or so, that there are probably only... 10 or 12 instances of questionable voting irregularities that would fit in this voter fraud rubric. (laughs) And when you even investigate those irregularities and pull it all together, you end up realizing that these these irregularities were, for the most part, dealt with. Mm -hmm. And you can do research and you can find that a, voter fraud doesn't exist mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes. B, to the extent that you have a handful of votes out of hundreds of millions cast over the last decade that, that it nowhere near has an effect. Even if you assume it exists, the effect is negligible. Right. And so you're left wondering, well, what's the basis here If the facts don't suggest the existence of voter fraud then what is the threat to the integrity of elections now of course there are those including several courts of appeals um across the united states have argued well there's this expressive effect right if the voters want this if the legislators want this it meets the rational basis for a law and Mm -hmm. therefore It ought to be upheld. And as the Seventh Circuit has said, you know, what business does a judge have overturning the decision of a legislature? Deference to the states. The states have the right to do this. Two, so we're seeing the ingredients of this new voter suppression in terms of deference to state authority, right? Right, states' rights. We're still not so away it's, it's, from this narrative yet. No. We're not. Yeah. And notice what happened. Think about what Hearn and Kobach and others have talked about, this notion of vicious voter, right? Vicious immigrant voter. And by immigrant, they mean Mexican presumably. Mm-hmm. And and look at where the action in this sort of thing has happened. Arizona, Alabama, North Carolina, Kansas, all places that places that are in the midst of profound demographic change. Mm-hmm. All places where we have the ascendancy of conservative thinking because in the 37 states where this stuff has passed, it's 36 of them have been Republican legislatures. You know, but and to the point by structuring election regulation around the exclusion of Ineligible voters, the exclusion of fraudulent voters and framing the fraud as one of, you know, the alien, the stranger, the unworthy person who is going to come in and purposefully, through some grand conspiracy, disrupt elections, we are evoking the rhetoric of the vicious voter. hmm So the deference to state's rights, the rhetoric of the vicious voter. And the effect being. An expression of a preference for who is and who is not welcome in the electorate. Mm -hmm. And as I said early on in this discussion. When you set these burdens out, and now we can also say, and when they get framed by motives, one, legislators are highly motivated to pass them. Mm -hmm. And my friend and classmate Christian Gross, who's a political scientist at USC, has um, written on that issue. And then, two, from a legal, you know, if you think about it from the perspective of the lengthy political science literature on the dissuasive effect, you've added another level of dissuasion Mm -hmm. because you don't want folks to sort through, and people don't want to waste their time sorting through these cumulative burdens when they think it doesn't really matter. And moreover, given this vicious voter narrative,
1: right.
0: they won't welcome me into the process anyway. They're sending me the signal that I'm not welcome in the process. And the really intractable part about all this, the thing that makes me pessimistic about this, is that this is ultimately a 90-10 problem. Mm-hmm. And by 90-10 problem, I mean in terms of the demographics of who has ID, what the census points us to is that it's 10 to 11% of Americans across the country don't have the ID where the 89 to 90% of us do. And so... We get back to where we started, that veil of neutrality. Right. If I am in a world where I see these rules and I'm told that they're fair and I can comply with them as easily as by pulling my wallet out and presenting my ID, then I have no incentive incentive to think about the 10th who can't. Right. And... And my analysis stops and stops there. Now notice, we've spent an hour and a half talking about how (laughs) there's this long history that would make the persons who are in the 10th that have the burden and the people concerned about their legacy, folks like you and me, folks who have inherited this history, Folks who are mindful of this warping in our ideology of equality get worried about it. But there's no incentive for a political movement in this regard, right? There's no incentive to rethink these questions absent this patima of neutrality, mm-hmm. And so in some ways, it's this notion of neutrality that becomes questionable. Because the notion of neutrality reinforces the inequality that exists purely because of the long saga of defining who is superior and who is subordinate within our democratic republic. Mm -hmm. Right. And so... It's really about where do you start the conversation? Mm-hmm. Do you start it with, "Oh, these are these laws are in the books and they don't affect me, so they must be right," which was the same argument raised in 1965, in 1902, in 1865, and in 1797, mm-hmm. right? Or do you set this up as putting the preference towards inclusion and presuming that one ought to be included unless and until some issue comes up that knocks out that status of inclusion?
1: the mic and walk away. Uh, I think Professor Ellis ended this uh, episode of B-Side Conversations brilliantly as he talked about many different things throughout um, this hour and a half. Um, You know, there's a lot to digest and there's a lot to think about, but I think it's important to, as we move through this election season, this election cycle, uh, really keep in mind the struggle uh that is ongoing with our uh society with the with the thing that we're trying to build here um, and how difficult it is to exorcise the demons of our deeply discriminative past, our deeply um problematic past and how um how ignorant we all are. Uh, some more than others, certainly, um, and the incentives for ignorance are, are definitely uh, disproportionate. But how important it is to keep in mind how we've gotten to this point, and why, and or how we how we've come to enjoy the the freedoms and the rights that we have, and how much of a fight it is to maintain those things, uh, I think is so important and to uh, ascribe correlation and causation to the most unpleasant thing that um, we talk about or even think about in this country which in my opinion and i think professor ellis would agree is white male supremacy um and until we're able to recognize it until we're able to 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 look that set of morals, that set of ideas that have built the institutions that still exist today, we're going to struggle to make good on the promise of the United States of America for all its people. And we must all look at that um, very unpleasant but foundational aspect of our society, clearly, courageously and honestly uh, so hopefully this episode has brought us um, and you the listener to a point where we can do that better where we can stand up and admit to ourselves uh, our problematic past and then and only then begin to move forward people are very fond of talking about how a dialogue around race and a dialogue around discrimination needs to happen but most are very unwilling to talk about the cause of the discrimination, the cause of inequality, the cause of racism. Um, And so this episode, along with many others, are designed to uh, help all of us as citizens of this country, as citizens of Human civilization, and as members of the species Homo sapien, um, be more honest with ourselves about where we are as a people. So, stay tuned for the next episode of B Side Conversations, where uh, Anthony uh, Jackson from uh, the first episode of this season and I talk more explicitly about human civilization, uh, going back even further to the foundations of. Um, one particular culture that has come to dominate this planet Um, so thanks for coming by again b-side listeners and we'll see you in just uh, a little bit thanks for listening and stay tuned for another b-side conversation got a question comment or an idea for a show send us an email at bsideconvo at gmail.com That's bsideconvo at gmail.com. In the meantime, make sure you're taking the time to be curious about and listen to the people you encounter in your everyday life. Remember, the B-side is as close as that unfamiliar person standing next to you.